want to say uh, to uh, Jason and to Pamela, to Omer, uh, Tom, Marcus, Danielle, for our last series, Why Are You a Christian? Uh, just sharing their very candid thoughts, hearts, stories, struggles, all that kind of stuff. It was uh, really wonderful uh, to hear, and I got to edit the message uh, after we got back from Michigan uh, on Thursday. And just to hear uh, kind of the depth of wisdom and the depth of commitment from uh, our people. And I hope you got a chance to see a little bit uh, more into the people that are uh, responsible for uh, kind of leading this place and overseeing, making sure that we're on point, uh, that uh, we're maintaining true to our core mission and our core values and all that kind of stuff. Um, it was really insightful and helpful. helpful. Um, we, I just actually got a comment today that the series, Why Are You a Christian?, uh, may not have landed really, really solidly on then this is why I am still a Christian to this particular day, and these are the things that I am grounded in. These are the things that I really affirm. These are the things that really inspire and really infuse my faith with deep understanding, uh, insight, uh, with profound um, responsibility to act and behave in this particular world. And uh, I think that's a fair uh, critique. Uh, there's only so much time that we have, of course, once a week when we share messages and teachings. I hope that conversations continue on. But I thought that uh, feedback was very appropriate for what we're doing today, because today we are launching into a, a new series, uh, after we're coming out of that one, entitled So... Um, that is my way of saying there are some questions that I think many of us continually ask and struggle with. Uh, things such as this, why are we here? Some big worldview questions. The questions that emerge out of life lived with surprise and tragedy, hope, expectation, failure, misery, all these things, questions begin to emerge. One of those, why am I even here? And then there are questions that emerge when you grow up in a place such as this, where there seems to be a, a fair amount of understanding of faith. Uh, what is wrong with the world? Why did Jesus have to die? What did Jesus' death really mean? Some core key things. Um, regarding Christianity, what does it mean to be saved? And by the way, that's not just a question for Christianity. That's a question that a lot of people simply ask. They may not use that particular terminology. What does it mean to be saved? But they will ask questions that are very much alike that. Uh, what does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to overcome? Uh, what does it mean to achieve? These are all questions that resonate with a very similar harmony with these questions. Big questions like, you know, what happens when we die? Uh, heaven and hell. Those are words that are uh, obviously very frequently thrown around. Uh, due to some of our history, uh, Dante's Inferno, uh, some church history, some writings, even in American 17th and 18th century preachers about the fire and brimstone. We have inherited images and ideas about what these concepts and these teachings and these words mean. Uh, how many of you ever heard of the pearly gates or St. Peter on the clouds? Right? These are all images and ideas that we have. Uh, and then what is the Bible? And then so what? What does all of this mean? Uh, the subtitle of this series is An Inquiry of Christian Beliefs. An Inquiry of Christian Beliefs. Part of what I hope we do here is we actually dig deeper from that series of why are you a Christian, give me your story and your struggle, to now what are the things that really ground us? What are the things that really uh, form and shape our Christian faith and understanding? 
So I, I want to give you just a brief introduction and then launch into the first question today, why are we here? A um, couple disclaimers. Number one, these are not going to be answers. For you, those of you who have been around Spark for any period of time, you know that we are very hesitant to give you, this is the answer, because the Bible clearly says so. And as has been multiply uh, demonstrated throughout uh, our history, people tend to use the Bible to justify all sorts of crazy things. So we are going to be very cautious we're going to be very hesitant to say, this is clearly what Christianity teaches. This is clearly what the Bible says, because that's not, first of all, Spark's character. It's not my own temperament. And the reason why we don't give answers is because as soon as you identify an answer to this question, you have shut off your brain to any further understanding, discovery, or mystery, or wonder, or awe, or amazement, or learning. And one of the core values that I personally have that I learned many, many years ago that I think is just so important, uh, I believe that the opposite of fear and the opposite of hate is not love and courage. The opposite of fear and the opposite of hate is actually curiosity. It's to be deeply, to search. Wait a second, I grew up learning this. Is there more? I grew up learning this. Is that what it really means? I grew up clearly understanding that God said this. And then you go, well, wait a second. Is that what God said? Or maybe that's what the Israelites said that God said. And what begins to happen when you avoid giving an answer to these questions, you open up your mind and you open up your soul and you open up your spirit, you open up your life to discovering greater understanding, greater depth of wisdom. And you get to push these beautiful beliefs, these words, these terms, these ideas that we've had in our history, you get to push them further and further and further and deeper and deeper and deeper. So I hope that we don't give answers, but that we provide for you perspectives. We're, we're definitely going to share with you some opinions. I have some thoughts. I, I clearly have some opinions. But, and that, that's what we all do as human beings. And it's part of my job, I suppose, as a pastor is to provide for you the best understanding that I have from my study. But I also want to make sure that our culture at our church uh, doesn't say, well, my pastor says, and I don't know why I always do an accent every time. I, that's really bad of me. That's horrible. I apologize. But we're not in the kind of place where my pastor says, therefore, it is true. We're in the kind of community where I have heard that it was said amongst us. What do you think? Does that resonate? Can you substantiate that? What other nuances or thoughts do you, would you have to add to that? Because I will tell you, the second disclaimer, this series would not have emerged without the brilliant insight and collaboration of our teaching team. We met a while ago, and we've been doing some emailing, and I've been providing some thoughts, getting some feedback. And so Pastor Danielle and I met with uh, Pastor Tom and Pastor Marcus and Pastor Mark and then Omer, and we all got together and we started to flesh out, well, what do we really believe in? Where should we go with this? And what kind of nuances and insights? And where should we emphasize? And what shouldn't we do? And what should we accomplish? Because what we are attempting to do is provide, oh, this is what, this is what God has been speaking to you. Here's a tradition and here's a way that the Spirit has been leading them. And maybe there's something about that. And you know, we're in a, se a season where many of us are deconstructing, which means that we grew up in a particular kind of faith understanding, 
And that faith construct just no longer works for us. Like the absolutism of, of declarations or dogmas, we just can't do anymore, or, or the guilt and the shame of the culture. And so we're kind of shelving away all that. We're not quite sure what we believe about miracles or the Bible or all these kinds of things anymore. And I would like to encourage us that we have a tendency, all of us have a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have a tendency to group together the form of particular things uh, with the effect that it has had on us. And so part of what I hope we do is we listen to those variety of voices and we say, you know what, there's something that was speaking to that group of people, the, the generation that came before me. And I actually have now an appreciation for why it is that they thought the way that they thought and they taught the way that they taught. I actually do have an appreciation um, for conservative voices, if I'm a liberal. Why? Because they are attempting to preserve. They're attempting to protect. Now, I may disagree with where they're doing that, but a conservative voice, and again, these words are so horrible sometimes, but a conservative voice is something that I maybe should listen to and maybe should be cautious about completely just jettisoning. You know, the liberal voice, if I'm a conservative, they're attempting to push further, recognizing that the world is changing and evolving and we should move with it. And the spirit of God is like the wind that blows and you don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going. And so maybe there's this progression, there's this advancement, there's this move that is happening. And if I don't listen to liberal or progressive voices, I might be missing out on what God is doing there. And so a teaching team provides that kind of perspective from different places, and it provides tension and sometimes conflict. Because as you know, those two voices, especially in our day and age, are in deep conflict. And I do not like you because you take these positions, and I do not like you because you take this posture, and we can't even have a conversation anymore. So the reason why we don't provide answers is because we are a collaborative group of people who are really trying to just work this out. We got a lot of questions. We got you know what? I used to think that hell was this, but you know what? My brother or my sister over here thinks that hell is actually a little bit different than that and is reading the same Bible that I'm reading, but is coming to vastly different conclusions. And you know what? Their conclusions are extremely valuable for my faith and my way of living after Jesus. So let's hold to that particular posture. The last disclaimer, sorry, not the last, the, uh, the third disclaimer is that this is decidedly Christian. For years, many of us have been struggling with words like evangelical and Christian. We don't even know if we want to use that word anymore because uh, it, it's in the news and people who call themselves Christians or evangelicals are behaving this particular way. And so the names get changed. There's this big discussion that's going on. And I, this is me. This isn't the teaching team. This is me. Uh, I really believe that this is an inquiry of Christian beliefs. And um, we need some time to flesh out exactly what that word might particularly mean. Um, But we are not just a spiritual community. We're not just a group of people that like to hang out and have tacos. Though that's a really key... Yes, no, let's... Yeah, okay. So, but we are much more than that, a community that is deeply committed to the way of Jesus. Uh, our tagline, if you've been to the website, and if you've been around Spark, we exist to inspire people to live the way of Jesus. And so the word Christian 
is a nice term to sum that up, rather than saying all of those things together. And so as we are doing this and as we're going through, the Bible is core and central. We understand that the Old Testament, what is known as the Hebrew Scriptures, is the Bible that Jesus read and taught from. And the New Testament, uh, what is called the Brit Chadashah in Jewish circles, the, that New Covenant, all of those passages of the Gospels and, and the letters of Paul and even the book of Revelation, those are books that were written, letters that were written to describe how our earliest followers of Jesus figured out how to live in his way in their time and in their culture. So we are decidedly Christian, um, and we are centered in that voice. And so as we go through these particular questions, we do not want to lose sight of that. It's not just that we have wonderful ideas. Well, maybe I just think hell is this, and heaven is this, and our existence is this, and I'm just going to pull that down. No, our hope and our goal and our attempt is to really dig down what really is the teaching here. And that teaching might be wildly diverse because we recognize that we have not and we are not the only people that have done this throughout history. And if you do the historical study, if you look back, I don't know, two, three years ago, you will find that people have had vastly different ideas about this. And so we recognize that there's going to be a diversity throughout our history. There has been a diversity throughout our history. And so we recognize there will be diversity even as we move forward. And that, to us, I think, is really, really beautiful. All of it committed to the way of Jesus. Another reason why this is important, why we really talk about what it is that we believe, an inquiry of Christian beliefs, is because beliefs, behaviors, and experiences matter. Beliefs matter. Listen, what you believe about governing authorities in Romans chapter 13 really matters. It matters in this world. It has serious implications for how that is lived out. And if you want to cherry pick some sort of verse to substantiate your behavior, that's a significant issue. And we have to really interrogate why we believe the way we believe. Why we believe we can actually use the Bible in that particular way. Why do we believe that we can take a verse out of the Bible and say, see, this justifies everything of who I am and how I'm behaving. That is rooted in some sort of belief, a belief about what that is, a belief about how I relate to that text. These things matter. What you believe about gender matters. It has real-life implications for people's lives. It's not just some sort of theoretical, theological exercise that you get to have in your brain about who is in and who is out. No, what you believe, what you actually believe about gender matters to people's lives. For those of you who were here, I'll reference Justin Lee's talk and conversation that we had a couple weeks ago. What you believe about hell and the end times and what happens when you die really matters. Our history has told us that uh, Christians who have come before us, who believe that hell was eternal and it was conscious and it was torment in the fires, believed that that's what all of eternity was. And so if I burned you at the stake for a short period of time, to see if you would repent, that would be better than to have you burn in those flames for all of eternity. And so people who believed in that kind of hell behaved in such a way that tortured people here, burned at the stake. So I cannot emphasize this enough. Beliefs and behaviors matter 
deeply. And they are interwoven and interconnected with one another. Uh, and we know that experiences matter. What kind of experiences that we have in this world with each other and how we behave really, really matters. From the psychological perspective, from a sociological perspective, and there's plenty of people in this room who are very well studied on this and can have wonderful conversations with you, there are even different ways in which behaviors and beliefs relate to one another. Um, many people would say that beliefs are the foundation for how we believe. But then there are others that would suggest actually it's a little bit more complicated. Sometimes our behaviors affect how we believe. It's actually the other way around. You behave in a certain way first, and that is what solidifies in your mind how it is that you behave. And then, of course, belonging here is part of the experience. And so rather than beliefs being more foundational, behaviors would be more foundational, and then more foundational than that would be the experiences that you have. And all of these things are somewhat interwoven together, and I, I think it's really beautiful to try to figure out which comes first and how they're all affected, but all we know is that there are beautiful interrelated connections between beliefs, behaviors, and experiences. And so part of the reason why this series is grounded in the way of Jesus is because first and foremost for us, these first followers of Jesus had an experience with love, with forgiveness, with grace, with transformation, with being seen eye to eye, I see you, I know you. They had that experience, and that transformed everything about what they believed about themselves, about their God, about their community, and it transformed then how they behaved throughout the rest of their lives. And so we know that beliefs, behaviors, and experiences are deeply foundational to what actually lives and works out in this world. And because they are so important, because they are so much a foundation for what gets actualized into this world, whether it's burning people at the stake, where, whether it's codifying discrimination in your religious doctrine, or whether it's you know, quoting a particular Bible verse for some sort of judicial activity, these things matter. And so, because they matter because it's that important, because it has real-life implications. Beliefs, behaviors, and experiences should all be re-examined, scrutinized, interrogated, and reformed. All of those. Re-examined. Let's revisit this. Is what I believe about hell really what the Bible teaches? Really what our ancients thought? Really what Jesus was attempting to communicate? Is what I believe about gender and sexuality really what those words mean? Is it really the focus of Paul? Is it really what's going on in that Is what I believe about governing authorities really about just blind submission and carte blanche ability to do whatever the heck that I want and make? What, what? is that really? These things matter so much. We should re-examine, scrutinize, interrogate, and reform all of our beliefs. How many of you would say that what I know and what I, what I used to know and what I used to believe years and years ago was completely inadequate? How many of you say, would agree to that? Yes? What makes you think you're so different now? Oh, that hurts. Oh. <laughs> we think that we have grown up. We have just grown older. We've not necessarily grown up. 
If we don't do this hard work of interrogation, then we, in our lives, we grow, we grow, we grow, we learn, we learn, we discover, oh my goodness, look at that, I'm six, I'm seven, I'm eight, I'm 12, I'm learning, and all of a sudden, oh wow, I didn't know the world, oh the universe, look how big it is, all the atoms, and then all of a sudden, 19, I know it all, I clearly, I understand everything. <laughs> my parents are, right? You get to a particular point where you seem to know it all, and then you stop. And what makes us think that even wherever we are, in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we will ever stop learning and stop growing? There's this idea in Christianity that I have heard frequently when we talk about how big this world is, how big God is. I I have gotten this response that, oh my goodness, I, I never knew these things before. I never understood them before. I am never going to be able to understand this. Like, it is so huge, it's so wild, it's so mysterious, and I never knew this theologian taught this, I never knew that pastor taught this, and that was, that blew, blew, blew my mind. And, and then there's this despondency, I'm never going to know, I'm never going to know God fully and completely. I asked uh, another teacher of mine who understands a little bit of a different way of thinking, and they would say that, you know, there's this kind of Hebraic Jewish way of thinking that says, no, 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 you don't get it. God is so big, so immense, so wild, so crazy, so mysterious that you will be able to learn something new about this God every single day for the rest of your life. You will never stop learning because the joy is not in the knowing. The joy is in discovering more and more and more and greater. And so I hope that through this particular series, you also, all of you, feel more empowered that you can do this too that you can engage with these questions, you can interrogate your ideas and your beliefs, and you can grow and be more inspired and be more understanding about who we are. What are we doing here? What is hell? What is heaven? What does being saved mean? What is the crucifixion all about? And by the way, I don't know if you remember that list of questions. This is such a short list. And we hope that this is just, again, a launching into further and further conversations that we, we can have. Is that Okay. Are you with me? So why are we here? This is one of the most fundamental questions. I'd like to provide a very brief synopsis or very brief presentation of one way of answering that question from a biblical, from a Christian, from a way of Jesus perspective. There are some Christian ways in which there have been answers to this. There's this catechism. A catechism is just simply an order or a list or a teaching, some sort of design of here are the things that we believe in you want to affirm. And there's this very famous uh, catechism uh, called the Westminster Catechism that has emerged and kind of is solidified in some Christian circles. And their answer to the question, why do we exist, is this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is your re- the reason why you are here, is to enjoy God Uh, to glorify God and and to enjoy him forever. That is the summation of the entirety of why it is that we are here. That is, again, in the spirit of this series, that is a beautiful and wonderful way of thinking about your existence. Uh, There are some, perhaps, nuances to that, or or perhaps questions to that. What does it mean to glorify? What does it mean to enjoy? And is this really all about subservience? There are different ways in which you can understand this. And so, as we go through this series, things like this, to enjoy, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, that's the question. Here's the interrogation. Is that all? Is that it? 
What does that mean? And is there more? Could we flesh this out? What is the story? And so in the very short time that we have, because you really need to read Genesis to Revelation, the entire thing, in summary, way back at the very beginning, there is a foundational piece of teaching that seems to be woven throughout this entire story that we've been telling about who you are and why it is that you are here. In Genesis chapter 1, we get the narrative. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind. By the word, that word, word, humankind is the word Adam, the word Adam. So when you read in Genesis that there's Adam and Eve, they may not be proper names of a man and a woman. It may be humankind and life, symbols and metaphors of what we all experience and believe here. So God created Adam, humankind, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, uh, if you've been around uh, Garden to Garden that Danielle teaches or been around Spark for a while, you know that there's so much packed into those verses. I'd just like to draw out a couple themes to help address this question, why are we here? The word Adam simply means humanity. You are Adam. In fact, I heard this one story where a, a parishioner of a rabbi went to the rabbi and said, I'd like you to bless my son who was born. I am going to name him Adam. And the rabbi said, I'm not naming your son Adam because Adam is not a name. Adam is a description of all of humanity. And so he found another rabbi and his son is named Adam. So th- that's how that works. Because <clears throat> that's, how, that's how you roll. So this word Adam Humankind, which is every single one of us, every single person on the planet is Adam, is Adam, is made in the image and in the likeness of God. And the very beginning of our story declares that all of us, one of the reasons why we are here is because the divine creator willed and loved us so much and the world for us to be here, to be created in that image and that likeness. Now, what does this mean? Oh my goodness, there's so much to unpack here. In the ancient world, idols and creations of gods and images were everywhere. You go to any museum in Greece, go to any museum in Israel, and you will see figurines and statuettes and carvings and images all over the place because the ancients understood that I am here, I exist in some, some particular form, and there are these forces or something that are working, and I don't really understand them, but if I could create an image of them and look at them and see them, then maybe I will have some sort of relationship or understanding to what it is that is going on, and then I will worship them, placate them, and hopefully everything is going to go right. You would call those things, those images and those idols, the same word that is used in those Hebrew scriptures for image and likeness. Humans creating images and likenesses of something that they cannot see. Now, there's a whole history to idolatry. One of the evolutions of this idolatry, and some scholars would point out, that what is fascinating about the anthropological understanding of this is that the reason why there are so many different idols and the reason why there are so many different images is because there are so many different things about us, whether it's sexuality, desire, 
envy, hope, love, hurt, relationship. You just go on and on and on. These things that exist within, uh, within us need some sort of representation. And I'm going to make an image and a likeness of that, worship that, so that my life is somehow better as a result. One way that we could put it is that our ancient ancestors understood that creating images and likenesses were actually creating gods in the images of us. We were taking our hopes, our desires, our fears, our dreams, our anxieties. We were taking all of that and putting them into images, whether of gold, stone, clay, and then worshiping those, which is a sick way of saying that we are worshiping ultimately ourselves. These are, in sociological circles, it's called a totem. Ever heard of a totem pole? An image and a representation of the values of you, of your community. What happens when you erect a totem pole and then bow down and worship that totem? You're ultimately worshiping and valuing yourself. Into that culture and into that whole history that we have, this story says God Elohim, the creator that took chaos and created order, that took dysfunction and created meaning and purpose, that God that exists was making you the image and likeness of him. And so into a world in which humans were making gods out of the image of humans, this story is declaring that humanity is actually made in the image of God, that God is actually making us in his image, which flips everything around. Because no longer then are we creating gods that we worship that will do the bidding of us, but we recognize that our place is to now recognize I am actually to be an image and a representation of this creator in this world. That is why I am here. I'm here not to create some sort of value and then make sure that, that whatever it is that I think and whatever it is that I value live in this world. No, there is a bigger story. There's a bigger reality. There's a much more mysterious, much more powerful, much more loving, much more hopeful, much more gracious, much more merciful existence in this universe. And I am supposed to be that representative of that creation. In summary, in short, we are created, we are creative, and we are creators. That all of that that stems from the beginning, of taking chaos, moving it into order, and dysfunction into meaning and purpose, that's why you're here. Because that's what God did. You're created in his image and his likeness. You are to be the representative of that God here on earth. Ah, congratulations, you are a creator. You get to create. And in biblical definition, creation does not mean speak and everything comes into existence, like some sort of magic trick. Creation means I see chaos, I see heartbreak, I see injustice, I see anger, I see hurt, I see loneliness, I see self-hatred. And you get to enter into that world and create beauty Order, connection, relationship, covenant, love, mercy, grace. This is what you get to do. That's what this God is. That's who we are to be.
This whole thing gets continued on throughout the entire story. You guys know the story of Moses, right? Charlton Heston goes up on top of Mount Sinai, comes down with the Ten Commandments. What does he see when he sees the Ten Commandments? Uh, Sorry, what does he see when he comes down off of the mountain? He sees the people, and they've created an... Here it is, the same theme over and over again. Where is this God? We cannot see him. So we will create something that we value. So what does Moses do? Smashes those tablets, brings judgment upon the people. You guys don't get it. And so he has to go back up to the mountain because he smashed the previous tablets and he has to get two new tablets to come down (laughs) off of the mountain. When he's up there and getting the new tablets, there's this passage, one of the most beautiful passages about this God, Because God speaks about God's self. And he passes and he says, the Lord passed before Moses and then God himself proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed. If you don't know this word, it's beautiful, loving kindness, covenantal loyalty. I will never let you go. I am in deep relationship. I see you. I know you. You have personhood because we are in divine relationship and faithfulness, keeping chesed to the thousandth generation. Now, now think about thousandth generation for a second. Some of you know this passage that God visits the sin to the third and fourth generation. That comes right after this passage, by the way. And we focus in on that passage to say, see, God is vengeful. See, if you do something wrong, your kids are going to pay for it, your grandkids are going to pay for it, and great-great-grandkids are going to pay for it. The whole third and fourth generation is not supposed to be a dictatorial way of saying this is what God is going to do. It's comparative. God visits the iniquity, the sins of his people, the third and fourth generation, but to the thousandth generation, he extends faithfulness and love and grace and mercy. If this story, if this story took place in the 1300s BC, if it took place back then, we are somewhere, what, about 3,000 years from that? The thousandth generation, if it's 20 years, we're looking at 20,000 years. If we are 3,000 years from the time that God says this, we have another 17,000 years to go before this verse runs out. It's comparative. This God extends love and grace and mercy, chesed, faithfulness, slow to anger, gracious, kind, welcoming, open arms, everyone is in. And we who are created in that image are to be that. That is why we are here. To declare that we are created in the image and likeness of God and to just simply say, well, that's why there's a, you know, a primordial Adam and Eve. Okay, that's fine. That's one way of addressing the question. But pulled into the story, when you see the character and the nature of this creator, you are to be that. This is what we are to be. Fast forward and advance to stories that Jesus tells. This is Rembrandt's famous painting of the prodigal son. And all sorts of commentary have been noticed about the shoe that's off, the hands, the way the posture is. This loving father doesn't give a rip about what you've done, is just so thankful that you're home. By the way, it was the father that found him, the father that pursued him, the father that went after him. 
And then Jesus calls his disciples, rescues and saves them to be his disciples, which is another way of saying, you be my representatives of this very same love, this very same teaching in this world. Why are we here, my friends? One of the most, I think, profound ways of answering that question is to see the very character and nature of this God woven all throughout our story and to say, oh, that's why I'm here. I'm in that image. I'm in that likeness. That's who I am? I get to be that? Yes. That's why we're here. I'd like to close with this clip from Les Mis. Many of you know the story. Uh, Obviously, it's brilliant. And this next three minutes that we're going to watch is really the entire sermon. And in this clip that you're going to see, you will see the bishop, the priest, Be that very image and likeness. And I hope it inspires us once again to be, to answer the question, why are we here? Oh, that is why we are here. And there's this moment in the clip where Jean Valjean looks up from the dining room table when the priest says to him, and God bless our welcomed guest, and you see his eyes lift up almost in perplexity and goes, welcomed guest? You've welcomed me in? And so as... The priest, as the bishop, extends to Jean Valjean this welcome. You see something radical change in him. And that helps answer the question, so why are we here? We should have papers. Sleep in the stable. Please, I'm hungry. Get out. For you are weary, and the night is cold out here. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you, there is bread to make you strong. A bed to rest till morning, rest from pain and rest from wrong. Bless the food we eat today, bless our dear sister and our honored guest. We have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Get the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, 
You left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. I, oh man. God has raised you out of darkness. I, I think all of us know what that's like. So that we can then go and be that light. So why are we here? Some of us, I think all of us, uh, all of us can relate to Jean Valjean in some way or fashion. And some of us answer the question, well, because of that, I should, I'm here because I keep the law. Some of us answer that question like, I, I, that's just what we do. We keep things right around here. Some people have no idea why they're here. <laughs> um, but what I love about this particular scene, which is only like barely one second clip, is that here are these sisters, and they're almost astounded at what it is that they're witnessing, right? They're astounded. Because this bishop is putting on display. He knows exactly why he's here. He knows exactly why he's here. He's here because of God's grace, because of God's kindness, because of God's mercy, because of his ever, forever long faithfulness. And because of that, he is to be that image and be that likeness to everyone in the world, even to the constable. So why are we here? Are we here just to make money, be successful? Are we here to just live our lives until we die? There's lots of different ways to answer this. I would propose to you, my friends, that a deeply profound Christian way of answering that question in the spirit of Jesus is we are here because you, every single one of you, are created in the image and likeness of God that bear the very goodness of that God and have been commissioned into this world to be that representative. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs>